Break out your wireframes and heat up those Git repos. We're ready to tackle topics ranging from accessibility to front-end design, user experience, and beyond. You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast with your hosts, Michael Feenan and Aaron Hill. Welcome to the internet, everybody. You're listening to the Drunken UX Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Feenan, and this is episode number 85. We're stuck on sticky headers. That was a really bad title, wasn't it? <laughs> I did not do good on that title. No, this is Patrick. I. It's really hard to come up with clever titles like every single time, and it's like when the obvious joke is there. Yeah. I mean, it's not even really a joke at that point. Like. Play on pun. words? Not even pun. a play on words, like quite a frankly. Sort of. Folks, it's if you're enjoying the Drunken UX podcast, please <laughs> go check us out on Facebook or Facebook, the Facebooks or, or the the Twitter at slash Drunken UX or Instagram at slash Drunken UX podcast. Or you can come join us over on our Discord channel at DrunkenUX.com slash Discord. That'll drop you right into our chat room and we will be more than happy to chat with you about Anything and everything, including penguins. Oh, yes, that's, I would, yes, we can talk about penguins. Well, we're not going to do that now. That's for the Discord. Please We need to leave something for them. Please come join Discord so we can talk about penguins. I would like that a lot. Aaron, how are you doing tonight? (sighs) Okay. Uh, Sleepy, it sounds like. Actually, well, I mean. I'm sorry I bore you. I did take a nap earlier. here. <laughs> uh, no, I'm I'm good. Good. Um, good. Yeah, I I have uh my my garlic is starting to sprout up, which is really exciting. I it just as an experiment. Last fall, I planted about um twenty or thirty cloves of garlic. So I've got about well a couple. The squirrels dug up a couple of them, but um, you'll have about four thousand cloves of garlic as a consequence. Congratulations. <laughs> Something I'm gonna, like that. I'm gonna call yeah. you. I'm gonna. I'm gonna call you Garlic Daddy. <laughs> Bring That's that okay. breath closer to me, Garlic Daddy. I want to say I've been called worse, but I don't know if I have. <laughs> I need to sit with that for a minute. <laughs> Speaking of Garlic Daddy, what do you got to drink this evening? I've got some Espolón Añejo. Mm. Um, it's yeah, it's it's pretty tasty. I put a couple squeezes of some lime juice in it. Throw a clove of garlic in there? No, but maybe next time. Next time? Okay. Well, yeah. You never then know. I can, I mean. When my garlic fully comes up, I'll, I'll put a clove of garlic in it. Garlic, garlic <laughs> martini? Shaken? Oh, God, man. Well, I mean, people put onions in them, right? Like pearl I, onions? I honestly think you could get away with it, yes. Yeah. You could do a garlic maybe, martini. Maybe if it was, like, infused with something. Yeah, garlic. Hmm. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm squirrely tonight. Uh, I'm I'm squirrely because I'm drinking monkey. So, monkey shoulder. Yeah, for your monkey shoulder. Squirt. Yeah, for my monkey shoulder. My <laughs> my my squirrely man. I, I've got one piece of advice. I literally just told our new dev this uh, today. Wait, you're not going to you're fact, not going to end the show right now, are you? No, no, no. Uh, okay. I'm not ending right now. <laughs> I I told our new dev. Um, she's you know young. She's new to the industry. Um, early twenties. And I said, you know, I've been building websites since before you were born, for one. And if there's one piece of advice I can give you that I think is probably the most meaningful thing I can tell you about working in this industry is take care of your body. (laughs) Like, 
It, yeah. You know, this building websites, doing web design is not hauling cement, mixing cement. It's not laying brick. It's not tearing up floors or things like that. But it takes a toll on your body all the same because your body is not meant to sit at a desk mm-hmm. all day, every day. Um, and taking time to get up, go walk, stretch yourself. I don't care where you work, work from home, yeah. work from an office, whatever. Like, really do make sure, you know, go to a gym, go go outside, whatever you need to do. Stretch regularly, get up, move around, because you will pay for it. I'm actually, I've, I count myself very lucky that I haven't developed carpal tunnel, for instance. Like, my hands mm-hmm. are, I, I get once in a while, I'll have one of my wrists, like, flare out on me or something. But um, by and large, like, that stuff has, I've been very lucky. My eyesight has pretty much been good. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I've been lucky, but do uh, anybody listening, make sure take, take that time, take care of yourself. You get one body. So new parts are expensive. I splurged I, my, uh, my job gave me a, a MacBook for work and I splurged on the magic keyboard and, and the, and the trackpad the, and the, the big trackpad. Uh, I mean, big, like. I guess, I guess big. Bigger than the it's, laptop trackpad in yeah, most cases. Yeah. 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 Uh, if you haven't seen one, the, the magic keyboard is like weirdly thin and it's flat. Like it doesn't look like this, the form factor of a normal keyboard. Um, but because it's so flat and because the keys sit so low to the table, it's actually weirdly comfortable to type on. And then the trackpad is just like a normal trackpad, but it's um, your hand can rest naturally on it. I have not had any wrist cramps or anything working on these. It's been incredible. It, it was it was pricey. It was like two hundred dollars to get both. Yeah, oh, they're yeah, they are not cheap. I've got a set as well, yeah. but I'd never used yeah. them ever. It's same deal. Where I, it came with my work machine and everything, and I'm just like I I work <laughs> at my desktop, not my laptop usually. Oh so yeah, I'm a Keychron guy. I use mechanical Keychron, and I've got a logitech uh master mx 2s which is a fairly ergonomic mouse like it's it's good um oh okay the keychron works I th- i've seen these before yeah no it's keychron's nice um it's almost everything i wanted in a mechanical keyboard it's wireless it's backlit it's rechargeable yeah. it, it char- the charge okay. holds for a long time on it yeah it's nice it's real nice i can see working on, the, on some brown switches cool um, as we're talking about tech stuff, I want to jump into one just quick kind of side subject here to get things mm-hmm. started, unrelated to sticky headers. Um, there was a tweet that went out, I think it was a couple days ago um, from when we are recording. Um, Saeed Balki shared a, a tweet about WordPress market share, and he pointed out that in the last 12 months, so April to April, WordPress grew from 35.7% to 40.9% market share. That's 5. 2% increase and it's three times the growth of Shopify, Wix and Squarespace combined. Hmm. Um and I'm going to add just a little extra sort of salt on top of that information cuz he also <laughs> shared a uh a graphic with it. WordPress is the only uh CMS on that list that had double digits not by a little by like a Grand Canyon sized, a <laughs> a Pluto to the Sun sized distance. Um, WordPress at forty point nine percent. Number two was Shopify at three point four percent market share. Wow, 
3.4. And you wonder why, for instance, the WooCommerce acquisition was such a big deal, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, none, uh, where WordPress cannibalized almost the entirety of its growth from the none category, which dropped from 43.4% in April of last year, bigger than WordPress, it dropped to 36.8%. So it's 4% less now. Um, so WordPress pretty much gained everything from there and also none lost it to a few other, uh, other areas. But I want to, I, if you follow me on Twitter um, and want some fun rants, I've been on a tirade a little bit lately on a few topics. <laughs> I'm not going to go into them now. Go um, just at Feenan. Um, they are probably amusing, and you get the full brunt of what a bearded, angry Feenan reads like. I think... Actually, I held my tongue really well, too, on that, I thought. I think you should reverse that. If you like fun rants, then people should follow you on Twitter. <laughs> Oh, whatever uh, uh, you, you get you get what you get you know I'm, my, my I'm a, favorite I'm a package thing deal i like to respond to your fun rants with just completely irrelevant comments yes i've noticed <laughs> i know <laughs> but th this is interesting um i think in large part because a i knew this like mm -hmm. i've seen this data before but i have i don't think about it very much and i guess in my head i didn't notice just I knew last time I saw like I, I want to say WordPress was around 33%, 34%. Mm -hmm. Um, but I guess I never paid a lot of attention to the fact that number two was more than ten times less than them. And that's have, really wild. Yeah, I have mixed feelings about it. The the comment I made was it's a hell of a note for a system like WordPress to release Gutenberg, which Love it, hate it, it had problems. I happen to like Gutenberg. I don't think it's a necessarily a bad tool. I think it's a good tool that was rolled out badly. Um, and I would agree with that. And yeah. it pissed off a universe of WordPress developers. Mm -hmm. And they were rewarded with 5% market share growth as a consequence. And it's, yeah. I think, dangerous for there to be no consequences to that kind of stuff. Like, that's scary. I mean, you could look at it like, you know, what if they grew 5%, maybe they would have grown 8 to 10% if they hadn't pissed off that universe of WordPress developers. But that's, I mean, in but one it's still year. Not, it's not nothing, though. That's a lot of growth. That's a yeah. lot of growth. Especially at the expense of the none category. Now, none can mean a lot of things. None can mean, because uh, this this data came from W3Techs, and they do some they do automated scans. And I'm sure they've got some tricks to identifying things and looking for different pages and stuff like that to identify but none could be none could be wordpress just very well obfuscated none mm -hmm. could be static site generators none could be small and up-and-coming cms's that haven't really hit the radar yet ghost for instance if you look at this list it does not include ghost cms yeah. on it at all um comes to mind but that seeing it happen at the expense of that category, I think, is the sort of other depressing thing, especially with as big on static site generators as people are. Mm -hmm. I feel like I want to see that growing as well. But, I mean, the other side of this, right, is Shopify 3.4%, Joomla 2.1%. I'll be honest with you. I didn't realize people still use Joomla, but that number's shrinking. <laughs> Joomla lost three-tenths of a percent over that same time period. They're not growing. They're going away. Squarespace mm -hmm. grew by 
from 1.4 to 1.6%. I mean, we're talking, you know, that, and that's why I, you know, put that in context of WordPress growing 5.2%. And these other, every other platform is like scraping for a tenth of 1% growth in the same time period. I think that the, the big things that WordPress has going for it is the abundance of free turnkey themes free cheap and free turnkey themes and then also turnkey deployment and setup like there are so many hosts that you just i mean if you don't want to host with wordpress.com you just pick pick your favorite and you say yes i want a wordpress site and then like what do you want to call it and you just give it the name and then boom you're done i really think that static site generators could maybe have they could probably capture more of the market share of wordpress if you could get those turnkey elements streamlined a bit more because yeah. setting up a static site generator is a bit of a pain in the ass oh yeah absolutely but i'm doing I, one right now I, I think it's um static site generators fill the niche that i think wordpress initially filled when you had to do a lot more of the work on your own yeah i want a simple site very fast yeah yeah exactly and, and people who know static site generators know they can set up a simple site really fast that way. Yeah. But it's it's still very much a, I mean, this is going to maybe come off wrong, and I don't <laughs> apologize for it. Static site generation is the realm of the elite. You have to be knowledgeable about, like, basic web stuff that isn't as abundantly no, known. Not anymore. Not basic. You have to be versed in pretty advanced web stuff. To pull you mean that you mean to do to do the setup, to do this to set up you know to set up a static site generator to understand how to run it. If I went and you know I mentioned we've got a new hire on our team, and if I said mm-hmm. go set set me up a site with eleven T, I want yeah. to see it in an hour. I think maybe I'm using maybe basic is the wrong word. What I meant is that once the site is set up, um, you have to know like CSS. You have to be able to write Markdown. Um, or understand how to write HTML. You mean the maintenance side? The maintenance side. Okay. Yeah, running, main, like running the site the way someone might. The, the the steps that you would have to do, like if you're doing a WordPress thing, like doing that stuff. Yeah. Okay. I, I thought you meant like the end to end, like getting it set up included in that. That's the part that needs to be simplified. Right. Right. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's weird, and I you know I know I sound like I'm super down on that. I agree with you 100. percent Like. Yeah, the stuff WordPress has figured out and does well, and and you know benefits people on is huge. You know the fact that you can set up a website in an hour, and mm-hmm. you know have a you know an hour and fifty dollars can get you a really good looking site very quickly. Um, yeah, without really any experience. Now, yeah, you need to be able to read a page of options, for instance, to do that, um, mm-hmm. and be comfortable enough to go, you know, sign up for HostGator or Bluehost or something mm-hmm. like that. But, you know, if you're under 40, you can probably pull that off all right if you had to, um, even yeah. if you weren't a web developer. So absolutely, WordPress has figured that out. And they've also, you know, there's so much they do well. You know, upgrades in WordPress? Gotten a lot easier. Yeah, Man, WordPress puts every other platform to shame when it comes to that idea of, Hey, non-breaking changes. Obviously, Gutenberg mm-hmm. is you know is the exception to what I'm saying, um, right? But that also that was a different thing, right? Like that that was telegraphed, and we knew it was coming, and like there was no 
no secret about it that that was going to be there. Like you can almost always, when you see that little pop up, Hey, it's, you know, time for WordPress. What are we on? Five, seven now? I forget. Yeah. I think it's five, seven. When you mm-hmm. see five, seven, one come out, hit the button. Yeah. You have nothing to worry about. Um, you know, the plugin environment. Now I could suggest a lot of improvements to that, but by and large compared to any other environment, their, their plugin management system is elite, you know, I mean, these things like WordPress has earned, certainly, I think it's market share there. But when you're that big, you're Google, right? When Google decides, hey, we're going to make, you know, we're going to take on AMP and AMP's going to be a thing and AMP's going to be the future of the web. And it's going to be that way because we say so and because we're going to support it better. That's the kind of power WordPress gets when they're the only CMS player in town. They can start to dictate the rules a little bit and Mm -hmm. you can do that under the guise of oh but it's the right thing to do it's it's the best spec for whatever given you know type thing it's but it's just dangerous and it also de-incentivizes learning things i think you're incentivized to go learn wordpress and learn wordpress hooks and learn php semantics but not necessarily php and certainly not other tools and and you know, think about the way Joomla works compared to WordPress. You know, like I'm good at jumping from system to system because I've used a lot of CMSs over the years. I mean, or just think about how the kind of customization you have to do in WordPress now versus what you used to have to do. Yeah. Like you, it's way different. I, I was going to say earlier that that WordPress is maybe more complicated if you have to get in there and edit stuff, like do theme editing and whatnot. But I mean, you really don't even have to do that anymore. Um, the thing is, right, WordPress isn't the right tool for every job. We think mm-hmm. it is because they have a theme for everything and a plugin for everything. But yeah. at the end of the day, There's if, care th- when you launch a vanilla <laughs> WordPress site, what is it? It's a blog. Yeah. It's a blog. And that's that was its DNA. That was what it was birthed out of. That was what it was designed to do. Everything else has been bolted on, and granted, they've cleaned it up. They've made these other things easier, page management, you know, custom post mm-hmm. types, all of this. But at the end of the day, it isn't the tool for every solution, but we like to pretend it is. I saw someone on Twitter talking about that, about how they considered WordPress, and they, you know, they have no, no nothing disrespect WordPress or anything. Um, they considered WordPress, but ultimately went with Webflow because I mean, a they were worried about accessibility; it was a prime concern of theirs. And b, WordPress was just too much. It was it was too big of a beast for what they needed, mm-hmm. and so it just didn't make sense to have all that overhead. Webflow has tripled their market share, by the way, um, in the same yeah. time span. Not now. We're not talking big numbers. We're talking point one percent to point three percent, but it's still. Yeah, that's a big, big increase. That's growth. When uh, WordPress is the ultimate, when all you have is a hammer type problem, right. like yeah. that's WordPress. <laughs> it's, it's the ultimate it's the, hammer. It's the the no one ever got fired for choosing WordPress. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. What one last thing though about static set generators is, um, like with Jekyll, for example, I I use Jekyll for my my tech blog and. It's built on the the Ruby ecosystem. It would be really, I don't want to say easy, but 
I've installed themes for Jekyll via Ruby gems. And I think that the, the Ruby gem delivery like process is a really efficient way to handle plugins and themes to be delivered. And it wouldn't be hard to automate it into a task. Like with rails, we have like the rails rake or rails commands. It wouldn't be too hard to automate that into some scripts that can then kind of handle doing the updates of themes and plugins and whatnot. Yeah. Um, I, it's not there yet though, for sure. It needs to be matured more. And I think that even with that, you're still having a little bit of command line interaction. Um, but I, I think I would be very surprised if we don't see static site generators increasing in popularity over the next couple of years. Here's hoping fingers crossed. Yeah. It's a neat idea. Certainly it's a worthy idea. Maybe that's the better way of putting it. Like that, that process is very worthy of a place in our toolboxes, but boy, <laughs> WordPress wants to close the door on that real fast. So I just wanted to throw this out there. Let us know what you think about it. Um, go, I'll have a link to Saeed's, uh, uh, tweet in our show notes. You can go see what he had to say as well as everybody else. So let me ask, now, this isn't a question. This is more a statement, and it will make you laugh. I want you to <laughs> think about headers for a second. When I say a header, I mean, like, literally the top bar on your website. And Okay, wait, wait, wait. Do you mean, like, on the source side? On the, or UI, on the UI side. side. Like, not, not the code. I don't care about the Got code it. in this. This is... We're okay. talking UI. Okay. So just the, the visual... UI the visual header. UI um, the header. Okay. How little... They have changed in the last 25 years. Um, like, really think about, go think about Amazon in 2001. Yeah. Like, I, they still had a site header, and it was still very much a header yeah. in every sense of what we would talk about today. Uh, headers have not evolved particularly well. The design certainly has, but every site still goes with the standard logo in the corner, menu items. I would say I would say that the uh to borrow from Stephen Jay Gould that headers have had like punctuated equilibrium like they'll they'll jump and then they'll plateau for a while and then they'll jump and they'll plateau for a while and and the the jumps have a lot to do with increases sudden improvements in what kinds of technologies available to us. Yeah. So a good example I think is um mega menus. Remember yeah. when mega mega menus I feel like were, were a jump or, that Flyover menus in general, or rollover menus. Yeah, but even then, like we've had we've had drop down mm -hmm. type menus for a long time. We, it just used to be a lot more JavaScript. It, yeah, it used to require more JavaScript, and they were real sketchy. Like they were. Oh not, yeah, they were not good. They were not reliable. They weren't usable. The accessibility on them was mm -hmm. non-existent as well. Like, yeah, absolutely non-existent. I in the early two thousands, I. Um, I remember looking at them and, you know, like they were neat, but it was like, I just, I couldn't justify, I couldn't justify using them because it always seemed like such a, like a risky thing to do. Yeah. The, the sticky header though, in particular. So here we are, we, when we talk about the sticky header, right, we're talking about when you scroll down the page and the page scrolls, but you still have a header up at the 
top of your page that you can interact with. Yeah. This thing, you know, this has been a pretty hot t- design pattern, hell, for easily 12 years. Easily I, 12 years it's now. A, it's a print throwback, right? It is but, it? I mean, if you look at, like, look at a newspaper, you have the masthead. You have oh, the, the, I see what you're saying. the byline yeah. and, and the, the relevant data at the top. It's an if, interesting, yeah, allegory. If new if newspapers, uh, analogy, an anag- analogy, an- analog, That's, yes, yeah, wrong, um, wrong a word. <laughs> if if newspapers could have interactive elements, well, I mean they do on the web, but if paper newspapers could have like hot links on them, I'm sure they would have the menu on you know the yeah by the masthead. The the thing that and going back even before that, or not before print, but before like 2010, we still had static headers. Mm-hmm. Except back in the late nineties, early two thousands, we did them with iframes. Really? Think about it, right? Rem- remember when we used to do iframe layouts? No, I don't remember that. Oh, you never did it? Man, I remember back when like Hotmail. Hotmail was originally an iframe layout. I well, specifically iframe or frames? Uh well frame sets. Frame set. Okay. But frame it, set, yeah. yes. I do remember frame set layouts. So let me rephrase my question. Remember when we used frames for layout? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I, I do remember that. <laughs> and we, we that's how we kept our header on this or our sidebar. You know, we, we can kind of lump sidebars in with this uh, discussion sure. a little bit because um, that kind of counts. But you, by using frame sets, frames as your layout mechanism, you could ensure that your body frame was scrollable, but your header frame stayed in the viewport the whole time. Yes. Yeah. And did not, um, it, it also didn't have to reload when you changed pages. Right. Cause the, yeah. the pages changed inside the frame. That was the, yeah. and your, uh, your URL didn't change <laughs> in the browser itself. I, I just shared a link in our production channel. T- take a look at that. It's an image. So that's, that's yes. a, it's a USA today front page from 2007. The the paper it's a like a scan of the of the newspaper, right? Yeah. So like you have like the masthead at the top, and then at the side it has like the it has kind of like navigational references like the money, sports, life, um, on the left hand nav, like everything about like our web layout is like rooted in print layout. I I don't yeah. think we've ever let go of that. And actually, this I I've never really considered this before, but this really makes me think like. If if print media had never existed, how would we be designing web layout? What would we be doing differently? Well, what got me thinking was, um, and we've we've already mentioned it now, I'm in the middle of redesigning the Drunken UX website, and mm. so I've been thinking about our menu and our header and whether or not, you know, I want to do a sticky nav on it. And so I've been doing some extra research on on sticky nav, but also on the accessibility of drop downs and things like that, just to make sure that I dot all the the t's and cross all the i's and i've come to some conclusions i'm going to save those for the end of the show and i'll I'll tell you kind of what i'm thinking at this i want to first start with you know what's funny to me is if you look at some of the big players in web right now like if you went to amazon.com right now they don't have a sticky header here you are at this great big you know monolith e-com site and we're going to talk about like you know sticky navs uh place in in ecom mm-hmm. but amazon does not see a need to give you a sticky nav yeah uh which i found interesting um as i was thinking about new egg same thing go to new egg 
Newegg doesn't do a sticky nav. Now they do do a sticky, um, but it's not the main nav. Mm-hmm. And we're, we'll get into this. Like they've done a sticky product nav, but not the main menu. So like when you're looking at a product and you scroll down, the thing that sticks to the top is the navigation for the product. So you're talking reviews, product details, specs, all of that. That I found very interesting. That is an, uh, a choice that was made that has, I think, a very specific application. Go go over to like, a, take a, a site, like let's, let's take something like MSNBC, big news site, right? Big main major uh, news player in the industry. And you look at their site and they have a nav that, sticks briefly as you scroll down. If you click into an article and start scrolling, um, the masthead will stick to the top and you'll see MSNBC, listen, watch live, news today, all this. But as you scroll, it goes away. And then they stick a bar to the top that just has the logo, the title of the article, and some share icons. And there's a hamburger, I, I should... Yeah, be fair. There's a hamburger attached. It's to like it, but like kind of a mini miniature menu. Right? It's, yeah, there's like a two stage sticky nav. Um, that just it's a v- very interesting design choice. I guess mm-hmm. I'll say. Like, I don't know how else to to qualify. I don't like it for what it's worth. Like, I, I don't, I don't like it. it. It doesn't make sense to me what they're trying to do there or why it's valuable to me as somebody looking at a page on their site. Mm-hmm. Lot of a whole lot of different ways to go about you know making these things. So I want to talk a little bit about what makes sticky navs a bad idea, what makes them a good idea, and how that's going to fold into my thinking for the redesign of our own site. Um, you know, and and what that means. The bad. I want to start with the bad because the bad is easiest. <laughs> First off, you got to think about screen real estate, right? A sticky nav means you are committing a chunk of your viewport in perpetuity unless you're MSNBC and you take away part of the sticky nav arbitrarily. <laughs> uh, you're, you're committing a part of that viewport to that navigation. Uh, this is way, way more true on mobile devices. My favorite is when you open an article on your phone and there's a sticky nav. There's also an uh, ad at the yeah. bottom that pops up and then they pop up the subscribe modal on you. And then you can't see anything. And then there's also besides just their navigation, they've also got a COVID alert banner above that. (laughs) And so you look down at your phone and you can see, well, four words so far (laughs) that are relevant to the article that you came here to read. Like that is an infuriatingly bad use of space. Mm hmm. At that point, you're committing space and arguably the sticky nav is not necessarily the problem there. Let's be clear about that. Like, right. The the real problem is the other stuff that's not being um, considerate of the user's intent. But it's still something you have to be thinking about. You got to think about your real estate. Um, if you go to TopTal.com, um, one of their designer blogs They've got a thing written. They say it's a common UX mistake to go overboard and stuff the sticky nav header with content. With a fixed header, browsing should be comfortable for visitors. Failing to find the right balance may result in leaving a small amount of room for the main content and a stifling, claustrophobic site experience for visitors. I like to think that we have all probably seen a site where this is a problem. <laughs> where 
there's just no room. They didn't they didn't allow any space for anything. Yeah. And you have to be conscious of that. If you want to put this into real world numbers, if you think about a, a navigation that's only 180 pixels tall, that, that's not big, mind you. 180 pixels is a pretty small chunk of space. But if somebody's on like a uh, an older laptop, and when I say old, I mean like a couple years old, mm-hmm. um, a low resolution laptop, like a, a 768 laptop, um, which is considered high def, mind you. 768 is an HD laptop. Okay. That's a quarter of the screen real estate. More if huh. when you think about the fact that you have to account for the browser Chrome too, you know, like that's 768 total screen pixels tall and you're committing a quarter of that and there's a quarter of it committed to the browser Chrome. So you're only leaving half of the browser height for a web page. Huh. It's, it's food for thought when you really think about how you're using your real estate and there are a lot of 768 pixel tall laptops still out in circulation <laughs> you know this isn't like 1024 by 768 type resolution we're talking about right um so that that's a problem you have to consider um and it's it's not a, it's not bad on its own it's bad if you don't respect that real estate is kind of it's the intent that can be bad the other problem, uh, Wisdom Labs has this written about research. They say, additionally, before you jump on the sticky bandwagon or any of the top trends, it would be best to get feedback from your users. If there's a common friction point that's frequently encountered, and if so, how would sticky navigation address that? What tools, pages, and features are most commonly used on your site? Do you need them on every page? I, that's, that's a really good point. I think that's probably would be the biggest driver for me. Yeah. Is is your site menu driven or is it content driven? Because a lot of times user interactions will happen within the content itself. Right. Um rather than through the menu. But like with Amazon, I, I think like Amazon I would probably do like a mixture. Like sometimes I'll be like, uh, you know, I'll, I'll click on an item and then I'll see the related items and maybe interact with the content area a lot. And then I'll be like changing topics. Go up back up to the top, search for something different, and then start again. Um, and maybe that's why they don't have a sticky nav because it yeah. isn't really needed. Um, Walmart does. Hmm. Walmart use they their nav goes sticky. Um, in a weird way as well. Like it as you scroll down, it scrolls away, then it pops back into view. It like immediately. Oh, if you stop scrolling. It no no like. Just as you're scrolling, like as you scroll down the page of Walmart, it goes away with the scroll, but immediately pops back into view. It's instead of just staying. Yeah, there's an animation there that I don't really understand. But they, oh, it's weird. If you scroll back to the top, it remains the sticky nav. Yeah, I I don't fully understand it. Um, but they Walmart itself has committed heavily to search, and so their their nav bar is very simple in that. They're basically saying, here's the search bar all the time. I do like that. I think that's a good, a relatively good use of a sticky nav, sure. especially when you're somebody, again, e-com, yeah. that's, that factors in, I think, a lot more, as opposed to us. Right. So this is one of the considerations that I've been chewing on, which is, why would somebody need the Drunken UX website to have sticky navigation? What is it about our nav menu that would compel somebody to want to bounce to another part of our site and need to do it with sticky nav 
I can't think of one. I think I, I feel like for our site and I do actually use our site now and then usually when I'm looking up show references, I would think that content oriented nav would probably be the primary right. interaction point. So to compare again, I brought up new egg and to look at new egg, the way that they're doing it is, is that contextual awareness, right? They have, they did their research and realized hey, we don't need the main nav up there are people mm. because, you know, some of those spec pages can be really long, especially the person's on the product page. The product is what is important to them. Let's make the sticky element be the stuff that matters for the product. Mm-hmm. I see that applying to us if you open up a transcript. Yeah. Oh, Our, our yeah. transcript is inside of a container to keep the page short when the page loads because there's a lot of text in it. If you hit the button, it expands down, makes the page 20 times longer. So in mm. that situation, I could very much see as you scroll down, maintaining a a sticky bar that might have the audio player and like a back to links, you know, or back to back to, um, you know, notes type yeah. link there, you know, that would take you basically a back to top right. type of feature. Because if you're a long way down that uh that transcript, it's a long scroll to get back to the top at that point, and there's no way to reclose it at that stage. Now, I may do some other work there, but thinking about what what does the user need from a sticky nav in the context they are in, and for me, I feel like that's an easy answer for us and for other. You know, I think that's what Newegg did, mm-hmm. and Walmart kind of. Um, you know, Walmart's goal was a little different. The other, uh, or one of the last two issues, one is there is sort of a risk of hostile design that comes out of this. The Adobe XD blog has an article. They say, um, Daniel Filler, um, he's the experienced design director at Capital One. He said, of course, with great power comes great responsibility. (laughs) I'd ensure you're providing visibility to these blocks in a manner that aligns with your customer's unique needs, not just that of the business. Sure, it's important the business meets its goals, but not at the expense of our customer experience. That just propagates dark patterns. This is just that idea of, hey, we're going to keep our header up there because we demand your attention and we want you to keep clicking on other things even though you're not here for those other things. Now, I can't think of a Hmm. named dark pattern that that would apply to or or hostile design that that would apply to. Hmm. So it's kind of like a like a permanent interstitial, like nag nagging thing. Maybe, hmm. if anything, I could see it falling into like a misdirection. Yeah, I think the hostile design risk here is something that's maybe less of a hazard and more of a like don't be an asshole kind of thing. Like you'd have to really go out of your way to make this hostile. Yeah. I could see inconvenient, but like hostile, I think would would you would have to really be trying. <laughs> I always the the one thing about hostile design that always gets me is is getting into these discussions of design patterns that are poorly articulated and geared towards a user versus things that are actively identified. So like when we talk about dark patterns or hostile design, like there are specific identified patterns. There's Roach Motel, there's Sneak in the Basket, there's mm-hmm. Misdirection, there's Bait and Switch. Like, these things have names and and constitute an actual, like, qualifiable um, unit. 
And to just say, like, something is built in the interests of business rather than the user, that's just bad UX. Like, that's mm -hmm. all that amounts to to me. Like, I wouldn't call it hostile as an adjective to, like, describe the intent of what's happening. I just think it's okay. bad, sure. so to speak. Like, yeah, I'll give you that. Like, if you're, like, it's it's a, it's an opportunity cost and you're, it's a waste of screen resource if you're not actually needing it if you're right just, and you, you're just using it because it's shiny and to uh, maybe to sort of go off of what i said like when i say misdirection you know it's the the design is purposely i'm quoting darkpatterns.org the design uh purposely focuses your your attention on one thing in order to distract your attention from another this so the idea being hey we're going to keep the sticky nav up there in hopes that compels you to go look at our about page let's say because again every site usually has an about page right so that's in that's in your sticky nav probably and that is that a, a dark pattern at that point no but it can be if you start pushing on it. and that's sort of the i think the risk that's being mentioned that that daniel was getting at is they it's not hostile design out of the gates but it creates an opportunity for it because now it's like, well, let's, uh, let's make the button animate. Let's shake the button to grab their eye. Let's add some little micro, you know, micro animations and things like that to, uh, you know, draw people in or get them to do this or, or force them to fill out a form or whatever. Like it's just an opportunity to do that if you're not doing it because the user needs it. The other one, um, and, uh, there's a good article over at Nielsen Norman Group about this. Um, they mentioned stalker menus, and this was kind of a cool one. And actually, the Walmart menu almost qualifies as a stalker menu, but not quite because it does stay in view once it has scrolled in. It's think about like it's it's like a rubber banding effect. Yeah. So the example they give is with a side nav. And this thing where you scroll down the page and the menu scrolls away, but then mm -hmm. after you stop scrolling, it oh, snaps it back, back into position. Yeah. I've seen those before. Yeah. So it's like it's it sneaks up on you, so to speak. And that's kind of what the Walmart menu does when you first scroll away, but then it yeah. stays there. So it's like it's it doesn't quite qualify at that point. Um uh, the the problem is A, it's animation. Um animation can be an accessibility concern, but also, it's a distraction for the user at that point because you're animating something that has nothing to do with them. Um, and it could just stay there. Like, it literally can just follow the user down the page. There's no reason for that behavior to be there at all. The user thinks the menu is going away. Cognitively, they process that and mark that, you know, in their memory as to where the menu is. But then, boom, it's back in their face. Yeah. You know, bad, is it bad? It's, you know, that's maybe subjective a little bit in that regard, but it's definitely excessive. I think objectively you could look at it as, is it preventing the user from doing something? Like, I think if it's disappearing and reappearing, I would see that as maybe it's going to be a little, it's going to be distracting. There's sudden, sudden change in my periphery and I'm going to snap away from the content I'm maybe reading and see what just changed. And it's distracting. I don't know. I uh, 
there's a, there's a lot of hostile patterns that I really dislike. I I feel like I I don't hate on this one too much. I I do agree with you on the mobile side when it crowds the menu, especially when you have like ads and other shit on the in the screen. That's a problem. Um, I like the sticky menus when they're like really tiny and just at the top, and it's like basically just the the mobile menu, yeah, but on a desktop. I don't mind those so much. Those I I think are helpful if it's a menu driven site. Yeah. So let's to talk about what's good about them. So th- mm-hmm. we'll get let's get right into this whole idea of ecom and and why yeah. that works. Content Square did some research. Um, they said sticky navigation works best in retail, e-commerce, and other types of actionable sites where the designer intends for a user to take a specific action, such mm-hmm. as click to purchase a product. Um, they go on to point out that this also makes people feel like they are in control of their experience. 38% of customers said when a website is easy to navigate, they are more likely to shop there again in the future. Mm-hmm. I just ran into this, actually. Um, a website that didn't have any kind of sticky nav. Because what's what is one of the most important things that an e-com site will usually put in their header? Your cart? Yes. Yeah. The cart button. We have been trained to look for the cart in the upper right corner of most websites. This site did not have that. And Hmm. I was trying to purchase something, and I was switching between a couple tabs because I was comparing some products, and I went back. I thought I had lost my cart because instead of (laughs) it being in a sticky nav up at the upper right corner, it actually was in a a flyout tab along the right scroll bar. In the middle of the page. Oh, weird. Not where I would expect it to be at all. And uh, e-com, I think, is a good example of that because you can put those. So with Walmart, Walmart putting the the search up in that is big because if you're buying one thing, there's a good chance you're buying many things. And so if you want to get between products quickly, search is frequently the best way to do that. Their cart is right in the upper right corner. Like every site normally has it. So it's immediate. It's there. It's easy to find. Um, Newegg using that sticky nav, but not their main nav. It's the product nav that's designed to be around the actionable components of that product so that you can engage with it, learn more about that product, inform yourself, and decide if you want to buy it. It's designed to facilitate your experience with what you want to buy. Content sites, content-driven sites don't have that. I, this is a little bit of a tangent, but a long time ago, I was working on a hired website, and we had just had a redesign done by our university network's creative services department, and they had this audience nav, and it was like students, parents, and I think like community or faculty. Like there was like three different audiences, but it was a it was a persistent part of the nav that would took up vertical space near the top. And I was like, why is this here on every page? Because if I'm a student, I'm not going to suddenly become a parent or a faculty person. So it should, it should be like something you choose initially and then it goes away. Yeah. The, that actionable piece, right? That's kind of what you're, you know, what you're saying there. Like, yeah, that's not an action that I can take. Right. And if, you know, students are one of your primary audiences, doesn't make sense to give them actions they can't do on an e-com site viewing your cart is always an action that you can have in front of you at any given point 
the the other interesting side effect. Um, so I want to caveat this. This research mm-hmm. is from 2012, so we're talking. This is a decade old at this point. Okay. But it's some of the better research that's out there, and it, it also comes from Smashing Magazine, as it so happens. Um, they said that fixed nav bars save 36 seconds off of a five-minute visit to a website, shortens a website visit by 22% by having hmm. that there. It's kind of unintuitive. Why would a you know why would fixed navigation, sticky navigation, shorten a visit? They said participants were then asked whether one of the websites felt easier to use. Six of the 40 participants had no preference. But of the 34 that did have a preference, 100% of them indicated that the website with the sticky navigation was easier or faster to use. Hmm. Okay. This, this can get hairy if you're talking to a marketer or talking to a, a C-level <laughs> type person because right. they're going to say, why, why are you not keeping people on our website longer? Right, right. Keeping people on your website should never be a goal. <laughs> Ever. That, yeah. <laughs> I remember when it was like everyone wanted your website to be the one-stop shop. So they'd be like, oh, yeah, put the weather widget on there. Yeah. <laughs> put, let's put a chat function. Why not? <laughs> People will stay on your website as long as necessary to complete their task. If that's reading yeah. an article, if it's an eight-minute article, I would hope that page has a six-minute time on page. You know, mm-hmm. something reasonable. But keeping somebody on your site is just as likely a sign that you have bad ux as it is mm-hmm. you have good ux because it's a one-dimensional metric i can't give you a better piece of advice about analytics except that one-dimensional analytics are useless uh, you mm-hmm. have to put them in context and if you can shorten somebody's time on your site while also reducing their time to convert mm-hmm. that's good yeah because it means you're doing things efficiently you're doing things right and as the smashing magazine research says if they can do it better and faster, they're more likely to come back 100% of the time. Like, that's no small ask at that point. Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's a to, – to have something come through conclusively 100% is a rarity at that point. But people <laughs> equate speed with efficiency and with quality. Yeah. They don't want to be on your site for five minutes because they're going to feel like they're hunting. They're going to feel like, I can't find what I need. There are a million reasons somebody may be on your site a full five minutes, and most of them aren't good. But having <laughs> that you're, sticky nav, unless you're, unless you're YouTube, well, but yeah, again, that's a that's a pretty different use case at that mm-hmm. point. Like, obviously, there are exceptions to any of this, but that's why I say that the stuff that Content Square was saying, you know, making things easy in the right context with something like ecom is a huge deal. Make it easier for people to shop. They're more likely to shop again in the future. Make, you know, give mm-hmm. somebody the tools they need where they need them. And lo and behold, you get good outcomes. Like, it's actually a pretty straightforward principle, I think, for the most part. Mm-hmm. So what does this mean for Drunken UX? I think what I may do, and I am not sold on this yet, especially because of the second thing that I'm going to say, but I may go with the... <laughs> Partially persistent sticky nav. Which one is that? Is that the one where it's like the little mini, like the ham- the hamburger menu? No. Um, and Nielsen Norman has uh, this described in their article, but it's the kind where when you scroll down, the mm-hmm. menu goes away with the page. Mm-hmm. And you scroll and you read. Because 
The idea is if you're going down the page, you don't need your navigation because oh, you're reading. But if you scroll up, it reappears. Right. When you I scroll like up, that is an yeah. indication that the user wants to return to something, wants yeah. to backtrack. And so you show the menu when an up scroll happens. Mm-hmm. And then if they start scrolling down again, it goes away again. I've enjoyed those. That is a that marriage I, yeah. of sort of the best of both worlds kind of situation yeah. because it gets right. it out of the way. Remember when I said, you know, the respect for space mm-hmm. keeps it out of the way. If you actually go look at your browser on your phone in particular, like Chrome, um, Safari, that's how they work. It used to be that that browser Chrome stayed on your mobile device. And now, ironically, you know, now that our phones have gotten bigger, screens have gotten better, that Chrome in in the mobile browsers goes away. And it comes back if you scroll up Mm -hmm. uh, so that that you can commit your whole phone screen to the thing you're reading. So it's literally following pattern at that point for what people expect on mobile devices. So it's, it's a pretty good use case. It does operate on that assumption that, well, does somebody scrolling up actually want your header back? Maybe, maybe not. Like, that takes some research, obviously. But it's, like I say, it's a compromise, so to speak. It it at least uh, gives them the option, and it gives them a way to get rid of it easily without having to, like, click something. Um, Yeah. The automated part of it is, I think, part of what makes it valuable. Like, oh, I don't want that menu. I'm just going to scroll away from it. And it goes away. I don't have to click a button. I don't have to tell it anything. In, going back to the hostile pattern thing from earlier, I, I even though I don't think that sticky menus are specifically a hostile pattern, I think we can still apply the hostile pattern razor to it, which is that when when you're considering should I put a sticky menu on my site, think about it from the perspective of what is this making easier for my user? What right. like what? How does this benefit the user? In the same way that you would, like, if you're doing a hostile pattern approach or something, like, you should be asking yourself, is this benefiting the user or is this benefiting me? Yeah. I mean, um, I'll I'll reiterate what I said. Like, I, a, a sticky header is not hostile design. Like, not, mm-hmm. not on its own. It's just not. Right. The default state of it is that it would just be bad design, which isn't hostile. It's just bad. It's unnecessary. It's excessive. It's extra. Mm-hmm. You know, like it, it's all of these things, but that doesn't make it, it doesn't fall into a hostile design pattern unless you employ a hostile design pattern in it. <laughs> if you right. put misdirection in it, if you, you know, <laughs> if you're putting, I don't know, pick one. Uh, if, if somehow you manage to put a roach motel in it, I don't know how you would do it. Um, <laughs> oh, friend you know, spam, you know, you know friend it, spam could be, built into it if if there was some kind of like nag to share right if if you had a like that msnbc one not quite that but the msnbc one since share this is prominent on those pages you maybe could argue that it's bordering on friend share uh hostile design so or friend spam rather the the thing i'm almost certain i'm going to do though is the one i did talk about which is sort of a context aware sticky I do sort of like the idea of if, you, if you're looking at an episode page and scroll down, our main nav isn't sticky, but you do get a show nav that stays sticky. That, like, let's say you, we don't get a lot of listens through the website. Most of it comes through actual podcast players, but there is an audio player on the site. And if you are listening to it there and are scrolling through the transcript, 
I think it would be nice for that player to be stuck to the top with, you know, a couple links to go back to the, the show note links and to go back to the description or something like that. Like, that makes sense. It's useful in context of what the episode page is. Do I think people mm-hmm. will use it? No, not really. <laughs> I think it probably <laughs> would not get used at all, but it at least makes sense. And it is actionable within that context of why you would be on an episode page mm-hmm. at that point. So that's where I think I'm going to go with it. That's all I have to say about sticky headers. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Uh, I've got all kinds of clickable dropdowns, accessible dropdowns, sticky headers, partially hidden headers, and all of these things on the brain right now. So I thought it'd be fun to just kind of talk about and go through. Go check out the show notes. Several links in there, including an article from Web Designer Depot that has uh, some interesting examples of sticky navigation. Um, I'm gonna, I, they, they said uh, 12 fixed sticky nav bars that will grab your attention. I will say that is true, but not all of it in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> I looked through all of them, and yeah, they grab your attention. Sometimes better or worse. <laughs> So I think this is episode 86. Listen, (laughs) I can't be expected to count every week. I maintain show notes for a reason. And if I put the wrong number in there, but you know, the real thing is we move stuff around too. So let's just pretend like this was originally episode 85 and code reviews just got snuck in there. And we said, let's do it first. I don't know, man. I'm not being critical, man. I just was clarifying for I'm the gonna readers. St- I'll just stop listeners. using show numbers. How's that? What's <laughs> these colors? This, this is episode this is magenta. Fuchsia. This is the fuchsia <laughs> episode. Well, if you want to give us more color names for our future episodes, you should come and tell us on the Twitter and Facebox when Facebox.com comes back up again. I guess it was down today. It's back. Oh, damn it. Oh, well. Um, at slash drunken UX and instagiggles.com slash podcast, and come and talk with us and name all the colors you like in the colors channel on drunkenuxcom slash discord and think about you know the, the I think the takeaway the golden nugget of this episode is this idea of if you think you want to use a, a static header be sure to be considerate of your users understand your users goals on your site and in the worst case scenario do some user research on it um, mm-hmm. mock up some stuff and get on Twitter and have a few people look at it, you know, jump in our Slack or I'm sorry, in our discord and ask us to look at it. Like go out and do a little bit of research on that. Um, what was it, Aaron, that you had said a while back, right? In, in one of the uh, books that you only really need a small sample size to get a good view in some cases of like simple yeah. tasks. Steve, Steve Krug says was that, like was that Krug, yeah. five. Yeah. And don't make me think he was saying in his, um, testing isn't, User testing isn't rocket surgery. Yeah, uh, he said five five users. Your five user tests will give you like eighty percent of the issues. And that, yeah, yeah, not perfect. Obviously, if you want a better picture, test more people. No big deal. You yeah. know, do do what you can. Do what fits within your budget. Because when when you get that information, and you then try to figure out what you're going to do about that header, you can be certain that across the board you have kept your personas close, but your users closer. <laughs> you motherfucker. Thank you. (laughs) Tip your waiters. Uh, Bye-bye.